0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While we're continuing our series, Why Follow Jesus Today? So, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 6, verses 52 to 59, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Atoning Work of Jesus.
1: There are times when I'm reading the scripture that I feel I have to hush my spirit. For even though I know that all Scripture is sacred, but in some places, I know that I'm stepping on the very centerpiece of God's purposes, and I feel I begin to tremble. You know, such, I think, is the passage that I'm about to read it. It feels like holy ground. I I feel like I need to put my hand over my heart and simply listen and let the words of Jesus drench over me. Look, here's why I feel this way about John 6, 52 to 59. This passage is about ground zero in terms of my salvation. And if you know Christ, it's about your salvation as well. This passage is the doorway into heaven. It's the place where cleansing from sin is found. It's the ground upon which we are found to have been made acceptable to God. I feel that in speaking on this passage that I should hush my tone and, and tremble before God. So our passage is John six fifty-two to 59. Let's read it now. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When we read that last sentence, that these things were said as Jesus taught in the synagogue in Capernaum, I'm reminded that I've been there a number of times. Capernaum was Jesus' hometown, it was the base of his operations while he ministered in Galilee. Peter's mother-in-law lived there, and Peter also fished off the shores of that village. Matthew first encountered Jesus there and and was converted. I mention this because, as we know, the entire discussion of the latter part of John chapter 6 happened in that very synagogue, and it wasn't just a normal time of the year, it was Passover. They would have been reading from Exodus 12 and 13 about the slaughter of the Passover lamb and taking of its blood and putting it on the doorposts of each house, and then eating the roasted lamb, along with the eating of the unleavened bread. This was to be borne in mind. Eating and drinking are a part of Passover. So please also notice that the Jews were arguing among themselves. Jesus has been saying that He is bread that has come down from heaven, and then He calls them to come and eat. The bread that he gives them is his flesh, and suddenly they are hearing something they never hear at Passover, and that starts an argument. The Jews are not so dull that they actually think that Jesus is inviting them to a cannibalistic feast in which, you know, he's offering himself to them. They know it must be symbolic, but what can it mean? It is Passover, but how do you connect the thought of Passover with what he's saying now? And so there's a murmur, as I imagine the men of the synagogue are whispering to one another. Some are shaking their heads and others are offering up possible interpretations, but but nothing makes sense. How can this man invite them to eat of him, his body and his blood? To that, Jesus responds with the words of verses 53 and 54. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, on the one hand, this saying would have been offensive. Every good Jew knew that God forbade the eating of blood. You might consider Leviticus 17, verse 10. It says, if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourned among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. There is in the First Testament, from the book of Genesis on, an absolute prohibition against eating any meat with blood. Eating blood was considered a sin against God. So you can almost hear the murmuring increasing. What does he mean? It can't be literal, for that would be an offense to God. I need to stop our discussion of this text because of a very important debate that has happened in the Christian church because of this saying. It turns out that the ancient Jews were not the only ones murmuring. The church has been murmuring as well. There are those who argue that this saying is a reference to the Lord's Supper or communion, or if you're a Roman Catholic, the sacrament of the Eucharist. That is, there are those Christians who argue that John 6:53 and 54 is an anticipation of the sharing of the Lord's table, and therefore the Lord's table must be a sacrament. So let me explain. A sacrament is, in the thinking of some, a means of grace. That is, God forgives our sins through the means He has chosen, and a sacrament is one of the means that God has chosen to forgive sins. And since the verb that's used in this passage for to eat literally implies to munch, that is, the literal act of eating, some have argued that what Jesus meant is that we must literally eat of His flesh. And if we accept that view and then look forward to verse 54, where Jesus says that whoever feeds on his flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life, well, I think you can see that if Jesus is in fact thinking of the Lord's table, he means to say that whoever partakes of the Lord's table has eternal life. That was the view of Ignatius, the well-known Roman Catholic theologian of the 16th century, who argued that the Eucharist is the medicine of immortality. And the idea being that the wine is the literal blood of Christ, and the bread is the literal body of Christ, and that by consuming them, one is in fact consuming Christ, and thus eating the food of eternal life. In other words, this kind of a theology really does take the words of Jesus quite literally. Jesus is the bread and the wine, and we're consuming him. And if you allow me just a little more latitude. It was St. Augustine, way back in the fifth century, who would have strongly disagreed with that perspective. He said, believe and you have eaten. In other words, Augustine believed that the passage was never to be taken literally, but that eating and drinking of Jesus was a metaphor for believing in Jesus. And of course, as we've already seen, that's exactly what Jesus has been saying. Back in verse 47, we've read Jesus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Or go even further back to verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. That is up till now, feeding on Jesus is a metaphor for believing in Jesus. There's no reason, therefore, at this juncture to assume that suddenly, directly contradicting what Jesus has said before, Jesus now makes a reference to the Lord's Supper, promising his followers that if they eat the Lord's Supper, they will have eternal life. Allow me even a little more latitude for this matter is very important. Matthew, Mark, and Luke take great pains to mention Jesus' celebration of the last Passover. they in those three gospels that is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They tell us that Jesus instituted the celebration of the Lord's Supper, a supper that all Christians have continued to celebrate because Jesus told us to never stop celebrating this until he returns. But John is the only gospel that doesn't mention the Lord's Supper. Yeah, it's true that from John 13 all the way through to John 17, five chapters, John describes what Jesus taught his disciples on that night. But John is the only gospel that does not mention the actual eating of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is missing in the gospel of John. And so it seems unlikely to me that this, in John chapter 6, would be a veiled reference to the Lord's Supper. No, no. Jesus did not teach that he would be physically materialized in the bread and the wine, and from then on, the church would for all time be partaking of his actual flesh and blood in the supper. No, no, to argue for that is simply not in the Bible, never mind in the book of John. Well, then if that's so, then what does Jesus mean when he says, unless you drink of his blood and eat of his flesh, you'll never have eternal life? Well, in order to answer that, let me take you back to what I said earlier. According to Leviticus 17, verse 10, any one of the Israelites who ate meat with blood in it would be cut off from the people of Israel. God would set his face against that person. Now to Leviticus 17, verse 11, which is the the very next verse. That verse tells us why Israel was forbidden from eating blood. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. You know, when an animal was sacrificed, its blood was poured onto the altar and that act reminded Israel that without the shedding of blood, there there is no forgiveness of sins. God doesn't just forgive sins. He demands an accounting for sin. He demands justice. He demands that the soul that sins should die. But here at the altar, God promises that he will provide a substitute. Blood will be spilt on behalf of God's sinning people. Atonement will have to be made.
0: This month, we'll launch our new edition of Truth in Life today with Dr. John Newfeld as both an audio and video podcast. Our first episode, Dr. Newfeld will respond to the many questions believers and non-believers have regarding the relevance and importance of Easter. The trials, the torments, the crucifixion, ultimate death and resurrection, critical questions authored by you, our listeners and viewers. And Monday, April 15th, Dr. Newfeld welcomes special guest, pastor, and recognized theologian, Dr. Daryl Johnson. This will be a deep and surprisingly candid discussion about the necessity and circumstances of Easter. So make sure to join us online at backtothebible.ca or by subscribing to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel, podcast, or mobile application. For more information and to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: It should have been plain that when Jesus spoke about drinking his blood and eating his flesh, that he was speaking about the altar of sacrifice in the temple. When he says that we must feed on his blood and his flesh, he means we must accept His atoning sacrifice that He offers, we must receive it, we must welcome it, we must feed on it, or we must apply it to our own lives and trust in it for eternal life. Now, of course, when Jesus made that statement, He had not yet gone to the cross, and so what He meant, well, it would have been vague to these people. But Mark in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, records Jesus as saying, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Son of Man came in order to give his life as a ransom or as a payment to God, an atonement for the sins of human beings. And so, even though the meaning of what Jesus meant in John chapter 6 would have been vague to the hearers in the synagogue at Capernaum that day, one thing should have stuck in their minds, in some fashion. The blood and body would be offered up to God on the altar. So let's go forward to verses 55 and 56. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, watch this, abides in me and I in him. We need to read these words and remember the earlier discussion about manna. Manna was the difference between life and death. You know, as the Israelites were wandering in that howling wasteland, that, you know, that arid desert, very little vegetation, in a land where food would have been sparse, God's daily provision of manna was the difference between starving to death and surviving. And so when Jesus says that his flesh and blood are real food, he means that trusting in his atoning death on the cross is the difference between life and death. If ancient Israel didn't eat the manna, they would die. And if anyone will not trust in Christ's atoning death on their behalf, they also will die. But then notice the promise in verse 56. Whoever eats his blood and drinks his flesh abides in him. Now that word abide is a very important word in the gospel of John. You know, you might go ahead to John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Or in John 15, verse four, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Or John 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. That word abide, which is used often in the book of John, can also be translated as, you know, to remain, don't move, stay put, continue on, persist. So here's what Jesus promises. Whoever believes in his atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins, two things are going to happen. The first is that they will remain or abide or not be moved, but continue to hold tight to Jesus. They won't abandon him. They won't let go of him. They will be marked by their continual identification with Jesus. They will be so transformed by Jesus that nothing but nothing will move them from being his follower. They will abide. They will remain. They will persist with him. Look, don't you know that's true? Anyone who puts their trust in Christ's cross never stops following Jesus. I know, I know. I know that some of you are thinking, "Ah, I know of people who have stopped following Jesus. Well, the answer is, I don't think you do. See, what you know is there are people who have believed, but they have never trusted their eternity in his shed blood. For if they had, they would have remained. It's a promise. Now, notice the second half of the equation. Whoever drinks his blood and eats his flesh, he will abide in them. Jesus will remain in them. He won't be moved from their side. Now, allow me to take you back to the Lord's table. I've said that John 6 can't be interpreted to mean that it is speaking about the Lord's table. Well, that's true. And yet, you know, it's hard for any believer in Jesus not to read those verses and not think of our experience at the table of our Lord. And for almost all the years of my pastoral ministry, whenever I took God's people to the table of the Lord, I would follow the formula that was laid out by the Apostle Paul as it's recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'd hold up the bread, and I'd quote from verses 23 and 24. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Then, having repeated those sacred words, I would tell the congregation, brothers and sisters, this is the body of our Lord, take and eat. Of course, I didn't mean the words literally, but I meant the words truly. This bread, I would say, is an ordinance that Christ has given to his church. This very bread reminds us of his broken body and our command to believe fully in him. Therefore, in obedience to his command, eat of our Lord's flesh. And I'd say the same about the cup. This cup is the new covenant in his blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of our Lord. And we would drink, not literally blood, but we would drink what Christ had ordained that we should drink so that we would always remember that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And in a strange way, that was a means of grace, a kind of a sacrament, if you'll allow me to use the word. Christ commanded that we should do this often so that we would never forget Always remember that our only hope is taken up in His atonement. The Lord's table is God's means of reawakening our faith. It's one of the means He uses to ensure that we will remain in Him unmoved until either He returns again or until death claims us. Engaging in the Lord's Supper should not be used as optional to God's people. It excites faith. It's the means that God has chosen to reawaken the slumbering soul, to look to his cross and trust in the saving merits of Christ, which he earned for us on that wooden stake. And so in that sense, I do find there is a mystical element in the celebration of the Lord's table. I don't know how it is that the table of our Lord so excites our faith, but I rest in the assurance that this is Christ's plan, that we should do this in remembrance of him. Now to verse 57. That verse is troubling to some believers, and it does require some explanation. Verse 57 says, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. You know, what's troubling about that verse is not the first part. When Jesus calls the Father the living Father, he's referring to an earlier teaching that he gave, and it's found in John 5, 26. There Jesus said, for as the Father has life in himself, you know, theologians call that non-derived life. I mean, think of it this way. Your life, my life, it's derived life. That is, the explanation for our lives is in our parents and then our grandparents, and of course, the ultimate explanation for our lives is in God. But God's life is not explained by an external factor. It's not derived. He is life in and of himself. And so it's appropriate to call the Father the living Father. He is life of itself. Now, in verse 57, Jesus then says, I live because of the Father, which, you know, makes it sound like that Christ's life is derived life. So what gives? Well, the answer is that verse 57 is a compressed argument, and it's taken from John five twenty-six. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself, or also to have life in himself. Well, there it is. The son has non-derived life, just like the father. But how can the father grant the son to have non-derived life? I mean, I hope again you see the potential problem. Ah, but here a bit of explanation is required. When the life of God is called life in itself, or as we've said, non-derived life, I mean, this fact is not given to us simply so that we might have a theological conversation. God's non-derived life gives life to others, and that's the point here. The Father has authorized the Son. Doesn't mean that the Father created the Son, but rather that the Father authorized the Son also to give His non-derived life to others. So, how can any believer be certain, given that our life is fleeting and that it often seems to hang by a thread, that we will live eternally? Well, we know that we live eternally because we feed on the one whose life is non-derived, who has received authorization from the Father, that he should give his life to us. That's what it means to feed on his life. And that's why this is sacred ground. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ was broken for us on the cross. The blood of Christ was shed for us as it drained down on the cross. And we, as we feed on that truth, as we believe in him, or as we believe in his atoning death on our behalf on the cross. In consequence, the Father has come to the Son and says, I authorize you, give life To all who believe. Tremble and wonder, fellow believer. This is the source of your life.
0: Thanks, John. A theological question maybe, I'm not sure here, but really it's an important question, I think. Would it be true to say that you need to believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ in order to be
1: saved? I think I can say that you cannot deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ and be saved. I think there are those individuals who have very limited faith, but have simply entrusted their lives into the hands of Jesus. They've looked to Jesus for salvation, and I and I can't believe that they would not be saved. But I think as one learns and grows and recognizes what Christ has done for us in the cross, I would think that it is a mark of those who are genuinely saved that immediately upon hearing the atoning work of Christ would find their hearts rejoicing. I think rejection would say that we're not a part of the people of God.
0: Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us here tomorrow as we continue our series, Why Follow Jesus? Right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible.
2: may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020, for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfield, experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh-Again's own Phil Callaway, and enjoy special inspirational music, all while being hosted by our ministry team. So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now don't delay, we're looking forward to seeing you on board.